0: Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go.
1: There's always a light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark it appears, and it's a just that, like, that's how you have to deal with adversity. You've got to just dust yourself off and pay attention to the signals and be open to receive them and pivot quickly to, to take advantage
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. I'm Joshua Copeland. On today's show, we chat with Chef Eric Greenspan, who shares his greatest successes, worst defeats, and the lessons learned from each. Chef Eric Greenspan is probably best known for his appearances on big TV shows like Iron Chef America. What most folks don't know is the resilience required for Eric to carve out a place for himself within this industry. Here, he shares one of the largest obstacles to cross his path. My entire career has been
1: highlighted by obstacles both, you know, of my own doing and, and obstacles of just, you know, the world turning in a way that you weren't expecting it to. And, you know, what's been important for me hasn't been as much, you know, the obstacle, but the response. How does one shift their lives in order to, you know, to overcome obstacles when, when life throws them your way, um, especially the unexpected ones? Like, for example, the first one, you know, I was a I was a line cook in New York City for about four years. You know, I worked for at Union Pacific for Rocco de Spirito and for David Boulet at Boulay Bakery, um, for Paul LeBrant for a short period of time. I was a sous chef. Um, and in 2000, uh, 2001, I was a line cook for Alain Ducasse. So I helped Alain Ducasse open up at the Essex House, the first one of these fine dining, three-star Michelin, French chef experiences in America. Um, and it was an absolute honor to be a part of it. Um, we could talk about that some other time, but, you know, in the middle of that, of that about, about a year into that experience was when nine eleven happened. Um, in fact, I remember taking the subway into work. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I watched the buildings go go down and I'm like, I got to go to work. And I I just figured like, this is bad, but I don't know what effect this is going to have on work. So I'm just going to go in. Um, And I remember showing up to work and being the only guy there. And uh, I just, you know, put away all the fish and put away all the meat and put away all the vegetables. Nobody showed up. So I left. And I remember, I remember riding the subway back from the Essex house to my apartment uptown. And there was literally shell shocked people covered in ash on on the subway and I'll never forget that image of just you know some of us just kind of in normal clothes a little bit confused and some of us who were leaving the subway having just been deeply in what was happening um and you know the next day I got a call from my chef um no I don't think it was a call actually we went in I went into work the next day and everybody was there and the, sh- the, the chef, the French chef, made an announcement that said, Look, we want to continue operations. Uh, we want to keep this restaurant going. But in light of this tragedy and what we think it's going to do for business, we can no longer pay the staff to work here. So you can work here and we'd appreciate it if you worked here, but we can't pay you. Um, and that was heartbreaking you know? And, 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 frankly, super insensitive. You know what I mean? Like I considered myself a New Yorker at that time. It was four, I was, you know, I'd been in town for four years. Um, and to be told that you can work but not get paid at this fine dining restaurant in the middle of a national tragedy was shocking. Um, and so I quit as much as I loved working there, as much as the knowledge was amazing and the experience to me, that sense of that inappropriate sense of, telling people that they can work for free while they're processing through this. I mean, not to mention the fact we had lost a friend too. one of the guys who was a line cook with us at, at Dukas had gone on to be a sommelier assistant at windows on the world, the world trade center. um, And was covering somebody's shift uh, for lunch that day and went down with the buildings. Um, And so like in the midst of all of that loss and all of that shock to be told that we can't pay you anymore was a kind of a kick in the gut. I didn't want to leave New York, though. And so, you know, it was time for a pivot. And so I started applying for jobs, and I found a gig. Uh, Joe Cidarella was opening up a restaurant called Cidarella's. Uh, you know, he's got a, a, a high-end uh, grocery store chain in New York City. And they opened up a brick-and-mortar restaurant at uh, Rockefeller Center. And I remember walking into the kitchen and talking to the chef, and I said, I, I see you're looking for two line cooks. Um, I'll take one and a half pay and I'll do both their jobs Um, because it was important to me to stay in New York city. It was important to me to not let this tragedy change my love for the city and my support for the city and the value.
0: Um, And so that's what we did. That opportunity lasted how long? You know, I was there for about, I was there for about
1: three or four months was doing both jobs and was excelling at it. But I realized, you know what, I'm not learning anything. And at the end of the day, the reason why I was in New York was to learn. And whereas I wanted to stay, you know, to be supportive of the city and to not, you know, and to not let, you know, terrorism chase me away, I also needed to kind of further my career and, and just doing the two line cooks job while I was, it was satisfying to be like, you know, fuck yeah, I can do this. Um, and, and continue to stay, I couldn't, uh, you know, it w- it was stagnant in my career. And so I got the opportunity at that time, Walter Mansky, uh, you know, who owns Republic now and, and petty cash and about to open up BC collect and stuff like that. Walter Mansky was, uh, was my chef. I, I did a three month stint at patina when they first reopened as a line cook before I moved back, back to New York to do, do, to do the stint at cost. Um, and so Walter Mansky called me and said he was going back to becoming the chef at, at Patina, and he wanted me to be his sous chef. Um, and so I moved back to Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Um, you know, bittersweet, sad to leave New York under the circumstances, but excited to move the career along. And so I became the sous chef at Patina. And then Walter, who had just taken the job back four months later, left. And Joakim offered me the executive chef job. So I was 27 years old. And all of a sudden, I was the executive chef at, at the time was considered, you know, the, the best restaurant in Los Angeles.
0: Amazing. Just,
1: so, yeah, it's interesting how, you know, I went from working at the best restaurant in New York is what I considered Ducasse at the time. Um, and through this tragedy, through a various sense of different pivots, you know, six months later. Six, Eight months later, I found myself with the job of a lifetime as the executive chef and on a huge stage, the executive chef of Patina and on a huge stage uh, and ready to kind of build my own team and to create my own voice and to kind of start me on, on this career as, you know, an executive chef in
0: the Los Angeles food scene. What an amazing opportunity. What an amazing turnaround. There's something around the corner. Have you, you always had thing- that perspective?
1: There's always a light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark it appears, and to just that, like, that's how you have to deal with adversity. You've got to just dust yourself off and pay attention to the signals and be open to receive them and pivot quickly to, to take advantage of it.
0: And so you're at Patina. How's it going?
1: I mean, crazy. I had only been the sous chef for four months. That was my first sous chef job. So to be offered the executive chef job on a stage like that was insane. Um, totally ill prepared for that, but I've been ill prepared my whole life. Like when I was a short, I was a dishwasher and became the head cook at a breakfast joint while I was in college within three weeks. Um, you know, at at, uh, at at Union Pacific, I was a I became the chef de partie of Garment j in like a month period of time. Uh, you know, from Ducasse, I moved up from veg to to cooking. You know, when I was a line cook at Boulet, I remember Brian B Strong my chef literally turning to my buddy, Doug Saltis, who was the protein cook. And, and, you know, I I moved up to veg station from J. And he literally said to Doug, Doug, take it easy on Eric. He's totally not ready for this job, but I think he can do it.
0: (laughs) has kind of been
1: like the story of my life has always been like, all right, well, here's an opportunity that I'm not ready for. Let's go. Mm -hmm. You don't pass on the opportunity. You don't ever go like, I'm not ready for this. I think I'm just going to not do it. You're just, you gotta be like, fuck it. Let's go.
0: I love that. So you're at Patina. Things are going incredibly well. The restaurant's doing very well. How do you feel about Things it? Things
1: are going well. The restaurant's doing okay. Um, you know, we're doing good numbers. Um, you know, it's funny. Our food cost was out of whack because I told them I, I, I'm not going to, I was the third executive chef in, in nine months there. And so I was like, I'm not gonna, and I'm not gonna, we're considered the most expensive restaurant in Los Angeles. We definitely weren't. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna cook the food I wanna cook. And I costed it out and like said, like, look, this is what we need to charge. And they said, no, we need to charge less than that. And I said- I would rather cook the best food I can since we're considered the most expensive food in, in town and just cost it appropriately. And I had a fight with corporate all the time. And instead of like lowering my food expectations, I would just send them a spreadsheet every month and said, here's why our food cost is out of whack. And if you want to change the pricing, you can, but I'm not going to change the food. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were going to move, they were going to open up another restaurant at, um, at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. And they decided that instead they would move Patina there and that I wasn't going to be a, that, you know, that was going to be a different restaurant. That was going to be pre-theater. That was going to be a little bit less sophisticated than what I was doing at Patina. And mind you, like we had just gotten reviewed by Wine Spectator at the time, you know, Zagat's put us in the top three Zagat's was a thing at the time. Wine Spectators Reviews was a thing at the time. And we got I I think that the quote was, I've never had a more perfect meal. I've never had a better meal in Los Angeles than the near perfect one I had cooked by Eric Greenspan at the time. Um, you know, and Joe Team had threatened me, he was like, you know, if the if you don't get top five, I'd start getting your resume together. And then we got number one, and I didn't hear from him for like a week and a half. (laughs) 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 But when they decided to move to the concert hall we mutually decided that that was not a restaurant that I was going to be a part of. Um, and so, you know, that's, uh, so that, 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 was another change. That was another pivot. And I, uh, you know, I, 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 I consulted for a while and moved around and then Tim Goodell made me an offer to be what I thought was, uh, a partner in a restaurant called Maison G at the old citrus citrus restaurant space. Mm -hmm. um you know um and again we opened that restaurant rave reviews uh but all of the reviews were like tim goodell was so smart to let eric greenspan take over the kitchen and you know we're getting four-star reviews and every review is saying that And i'm reading it like stop 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 like fuck man you're gonna get me fired like this guy's a chef he doesn't want to hear that you know (laughs) um and uh alas that lasted about four months And I found myself in another kind of career pivot. I was killing it. We were, the restaurant was filled. The reviews were great. And yet because of ego, um, I lost my job again. Uh, And not my ego, uh, you know, the the partner's egos. And at that point I swore, you know what? I'm never working for somebody else ever again.
0: How old were Um, you and what year was this?
1: I don't even remember, man. I think that was 2004. So I was 29. Um, And so maybe 30, I was 29. And so I was like, I'm never going to work for somebody else again. I didn't look for a chef job. And so I pivoted and I, and I took a job at a culinary school and I literally taught culinary school for two years while I looked for spaces and I looked for investors in fact found my investor as one of my students at the culinary school
0: wow did you enjoy teaching
1: I loved it and I think that's another like really important part kind of along the string of like how to adapt to challenges like I I, you know I, I made up my mind that I wasn't going to work at a restaurant for anybody else ever again and so I needed to find something else to pay my bills and to do um you know and and for me I was like you know what I've I've always I've always viewed my job as a chef I always say the most important thing as a chef is to be a teacher it's not to be a good cook it's not to be creative it's not to be good in the dining room it's to be a leader and to be a teacher because if you can teach your staff how to do what you need them to do you can push them harder than you've ever pushed them and that's where excellence occurs and so I figured wow makes a lot of sense let's teach at a culinary school uh let's hone those skills and let's let's shape those skills because like there, I wasn't going to take another cook job. Um, I wasn't going to take another chef job for somebody else. And so I didn't know what else to do. And I loved it, man.
0: And so now it's 2006 and you go out on your own again.
1: You're, you're good at math. I know. Wow. you like did that in your head. 2006, 2007. Uh, I finally put together, I, I, I found a space that I wanted to open up a restaurant I had been in and out of a couple different partnerships of looking through spaces, dudes falling, like, you know, front of the house, guys were going to be my partners who couldn't hold on for as long as we had to hold on. We'd spent thousands of dollars negotiating out spaces and falling through on things. And I finally found a space that I thought was going to work. Um, and, but I, but they would only sign like, uh, I only had 30 days to close the deal and 30 days wasn't going to be enough to, to, uh, extend the lease. Um, but again, I knew I had thirty days, and I needed to extend the lease, and I didn't have any money. And I remember, uh, I remember asking my grandparents, uh, God rest their soul. But at the time, they were alive, and I said, I don't expect much of an inheritance from you. But if you're gonna, if you're gonna give me an inheritance, uh, now's the time, uh, because I need some money to keep this place going, to keep this place in escrow while I raised the money. That was Mm -hmm. the thing. I had 30 days of escrow and I needed at least 60 days to raise the money, but I wasn't going to waiver. Um, and so, uh, my grandparents gave me five grand, my uncle invested 15 and I needed five more because I told, I had told the real estate broker, I said, look, I need, I said, I need to extend it 30 days. And he said, it's going to, I need you to put 25 grand then into the escrow because I need proof that you actually have actually before that when i told him i wanted to go into escrow on the space he said write me a check for 500 bucks and i said why and he said if you're willing to write me a check for 500 bucks right now i know that you're serious And and i said but why would a serious person just give you a check for 500 bucks And the guy's like, that's what you need to do. So I remember having to write that check. And it was like almost the last 500 bucks that I had. I mean, I was a teacher at the time. I did not have that much money, but I wrote it fast forward. I knew that I needed to give this guy another 25 grand to keep the place in escrow while I finalized my raise. And so my uncle gave me 15 and my grandparents gave me my inheritance of five. And I had 5,000 left that I needed to raise. And there was two days left. And I had it I had a 1967 Plymouth Belvedere I put it on eBay and I called all my friends around the country and was like, I need you guys to bid up from around the country. So it doesn't look like we've that we're, you know, that we're, that we're, uh, you know, colluding on this because I need five grand and I, all of my friends were bidding up on this, uh, on the 67 Belvedere and some dude in St. Louis wound up bidding 5,200 bucks to buy the 67 Plymouth Belvedere. Boom, we stayed in escrow. We opened a rave reviews. We are the runner-up next to Moza and Fresh. So I'll take, it. I think it was the runner-up next to Moza. No, Moza was a runner-up with us for Best New Restaurant, LA Magazine. Fresh, uh, Jason Travi's restaurant was number one. Um, rave reviews, uh, people were writing on blogs and stuff that like a seat on the back patio at the foundry on Melrose was like meant that you had arrived in Hollywood. We were packed beyond belief. We were killing it. And I was like, dude, you made it. I was 31 at the time. Um, and I was like, dude, you made it. And then came the writer strike. And so, and I was like, I was in Hollywood. We had a big Hollywood clientele. I had meetings every day from all of the, all of the agencies and, and from the writers and the, and the directors and all those people. And the next thing you know, the bottom just fell out. Production stopped. I mean, this time the pivot was stay alive no matter what. And so I basically turned into the P.T. Barnum of the restaurant. I was doing grilled cheese nights and, barb- and, and, and and Gordita nights and bluesy Tuesday in the front lounge with bands and we did crawfish boils on the back patio uh, and we did like dj brunches. Like we literally did every sort of promotion we possibly could. Um, I stopped ordering from vendors and I would just take whatever cash I had in the re- register and drive to, to restaurant Depot. And that's where I did all of my shopping. And I'll tell you, you really learn about what kind of chef, like, like any chef can order high-end ingredients and farmer's market stuff and figure out how to make great menus. When you can charge $65 for a tasting menu that you built off of restaurant Depot products, then you're a <laughs> You No, know? my staff. Believed in me. I worked tirelessly every day. I, I did not take a day off. So nobody thought that I was slacking and I wouldn't do what I was asking them to do. And my staff sometimes was behind. By the time we wound up closing the foundry, and so I don't, you know, and the, the story doesn't end well. But by the time we end up closing the, the foundry, which was, but it was seven years in, we survived seven years through the recession, and and then the challenges that the recession threw our way financially. Um, I was six weeks behind on wages and tips for my staff my God. and they and they still all showed up on the last day of work because they knew that i was going to make it happen for them
0: what year is it now
1: so it was 2014, and again, another pivot. We just realized that the foundry was too strapped to debt. It wasn't going to make it. We had tried to raise money. We were building Greenspan's grilled cheese next door, and we had tried to get that open before we had to close the foundry as sort of to get it, give it a little a shot. You know, I had just won Iron Chef and had done Next Iron Chef, and my TV career was starting to take off. And, you know, I sat there, and I was like, maybe TV will rescue this restaurant, you know? Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And it's not why businesses don't succeed because you're famous. Businesses succeed because, you know, they're run right and they're in the right place and they're, and they're well-funded. Um, and we had one of those three. But so I had to figure out what I was going to do. I was trying to raise money for the foundry and, and nobody was going to invest. Let's split this restaurant. Let's rent out the bar to a bar group and let's keep just the kitchen and the back patio.
0: Mm-hmm. and lower
1: our rent and operate that way so we raised money on that premise and that with a couple of other pitfalls in the middle that we because i don't want to just sound like a sob story this entire conversation that's how we got Mare open and i rate part of my raise was to pay off my staff from foundry so i set it up where it was like part of it was like a licensing i owned the ip to the brand and the company paid me an upfront licensing and consulting fee um, and that's what I use to pay off my vendors and my staff, their tips and the money that I owed them back then. And that's, and then we got Green Spans Grilled Cheese and Mari open on that. Um, and we opened it with 40 grand from one of our partners and boom, got it open. And that was Mari. And from that, we opened up like six or seven restaurants in a year and a half off of the Mari thing. Another pivot.
0: How did that feel? P- that was, that's big growth in a short period of time.
1: Oh, um, it felt like shit. I hated it. Um, I loved what we were doing there, but my partner's like, look, there's three of us and we need to eat. So we need to open up more restaurants. And I was like, okay, but I wasn't, go- but I wasn't sure. Like I'm, I'm somebody who really likes to get his hands on things. And I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy owning a restaurant group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, I'm not going to wait 10 years to find out, you know, I'm like, let's open up a lot of them really quick and just see if we like this or not. I didn't like it. I was proud of what we did. I think all of the, you know, look, we had Fleishik's, we had Irvin. Fleishik's was that like kosher Jewish deli. We had Irvin, we had Mare Silverlake, Mare Santa Monica, Mare Melrose. We had the roof on Wilshire, and we had Greenspan's grilled cheese. I hated the fact that I was in my car more than I was in a kitchen, um, and it wasn't why I went into cooking. I realized that that's kind of how you need to make money in the restaurant business: was that you need to have these multiple restaurants. But I didn't enjoy it. And I'm glad that I learned that in a period of a year, year and a half, rather than taking it 10 years and being 50 and being like, whoa, I hate this. Like,
0: well, And that's what inspired the biggest pivot, right? To the cloud?
1: Look, I loved the idea of doing multiple brands. Um, I didn't have, I obviously the dust hadn't even settled. So it wasn't like I was going to raise money to open up another restaurant. I had heard of this business called Cloud Kitchens. And mind you, this was what? This was before Travis Kalanick even got involved with Cloud Kitchens, the founder of Uber. There were just this one unit and it was a small, like 700 square foot kitchen. And I teamed up with a guy who was a big customer of mine at all of my restaurants who always wanted to invest, but would not invest if my partners were involved. Um, Just wanted to work with me directly. And uh, we pivoted and we rented this little tiny space uh, and we launched what, you know, which started off as a restaurant called Kino, Uh, we we pivoted to delivery only. And there was a lot of reasons why I wanted to do delivery only restaurants. Number one, I knew that I could cook great food and put it in a box and I didn't want to have to deal with front of the house or our partners who had to deal with anything else. I knew that I could do the entirety of the business myself. Um, I needed some branding expertise. So I teamed up with a company called Made by Super. And they just, because I knew we were going to have to develop a ton of different brands over the course of the year. And so we gave partnership to a company called Made by Super so that we were constantly developing new logos and websites and and social media assets and stuff like that. Um, But why not create this delivery-only concept incubator where I could constantly develop new concepts and lay them on top of each other? But because I hated having to be in a call all the time, this was great because all all of the concepts would be coming out of the same kitchen with the same team. So I can innovate and make changes on all of my restaurants and all of my concepts. And respond
0: in real time to whatever the market demands were.
1: And could respond in real time, to whatever the market's demands were. We were learning, we were changing the menus weekly. You know, we, we, we pivoted from daytime to from nighttime business at Chino to daytime because I didn't have a chef and I didn't want to run two breakfast concepts and a night concept yet. So until I could build the business out, you know, we, we, we made that pivot, constantly pivoting, constantly changing, constantly developing. And at the end, what we had was the Alt Grub faction. We had, not only do we have four brands, we had Chino, home of the orange chicken burrito. We had two on a roll, which was a New York City bodega style deli. You know, uh, we had uh, Brekkie burritos, which was breakfast southern california style breakfast with like yogurt bowls and french toasts and chili chiles and breakfast burritos obviously and we had boo-boo's bird and burger but then we also had the alt grub faction which was a delivery uh which is a delivery uh like a food court so it's all of the brands in one order so you can order a brekkie burrito and somebody else can order a rice bowl your wife can order a rice bowl from chino and you know, your kids can have an egg sandwich from Brecky and chicken tenders from boo-boo's and it can all come in one delivery with one delivery chart because it was something that we could do. I could stay at home and not come into work every, every you know, not have to work every day. And if I needed so I could order food for delivery to my house and and do quality control. And right. so I didn't have to work all of the time. And when I did, I could have a significant impact on all the brands. It was it was an amazing pivot. And now we're kind of like, you know, we're kind of an industry leader. You know, look, the National Restaurant News just named me, I'm the only chef on the power list uh, for the most influential chefs, for the most influential people in the food business for 2020 because of the prevalence of delivery. Now, you know, with what's happening with COVID now, now we're in a position to really respond because I I have concepts designed to come out of one kitchen to really maximize my delivery revenue.
0: Are you guys killing it right now?
1: you know, it's interesting. I shut it down and I didn't think that there was any way to kind of control the safety of my staff and therefore the safety of my customers working in a big facility like that. So, so we're in the process right now of doing all of the things that we couldn't do in the cloud kitchens environment in an independent environment so that we can, I can give, keep my guys working and give them jobs. We can take advantage and serve the community because we've got the right product to be able to serve people out of and we can save our business and keep it moving forward but do it in a safe way
0: when do you think that's going to open
1: i've got a couple other brands that i think i want to launch under the radar to kind of get a sense of the market before i roll out the alt grub brands um i think this place has the capacity to do probably 12 different brands and i want to use it for r&d as well um but hopefully soon hopefully within the next you know couple weeks like if i couldn't keep my cooks six feet apart from each other then i wouldn't do it but i can.
0: That's incredibly exciting.
1: Throughout, like my entire career, you know, opportunity, you know, experiences out of my control have thrown a thrown a, a-, a wrench in my system, um, and we've had to make pivots. And I think we've made the appropriate pivots every time. But in this one, it feels different because I think that you know we can continue to be an industry leader in how to work safely and how to do delivery properly um, at a time when delivery is what is keeping the entire industry together.
0: Well, in continuing that thought, uh, this is a platform where you get the opportunity to talk to an entire industry. Is there anything you'd like to say to uh, the restaurateurs listening today? Stay hopeful.
1: You know, I would say for people who are expecting to do brick and mortar restaurants, I would close, you know, if you can't keep your staff safe and you can't make ends meet off the delivery, first of all, be careful about like, try to do direct to consumer delivery because those margins when the third parties take their chunk are significant. I've adapted my business model to, to absorb those, those costs. But right now with margins being as thin as they are, I'm worried about restaurateurs getting their first checks and realizing how much shorter they are than what they were expecting and panicking. Um, and so you want to get people, you want to set up a direct to, to consumer ordering platform like Chow Now for you um so that you can keep as much of your margins as possible it's going to be a marketing struggle but like reach out to your local your your local guests and your mailing lists and the people who support you and i think that that's not the best way for them to support you i also think that like i feel like if you if if you work out a deal with your landlord to at to take your rent to stop paying rent and add it to the end of your lease term when you can get reopened and buy yourself a couple of months and find a group of, you know, I see a lot of these fund me pages for people who are trying to pay their staff. And I think people should do a fund me page for like 20 grand and shut down your restaurant and hold that 20 grand to get it reopened. Because the reality of it is if you can if you can reopen and restock the shelves and bring your staff back in, you can reopen for that amount of money and get back in the game.
0: That's great advice, Chef. Where can people find you on social?
1: At Chef Greeny. C-H-E-F-G-R-E-E-N-Y. I mainly do Instagram, mainly do Instagram stories, but you know, nowadays, sitting at home, I'm I'm doing all that shit. I might even get into TikTok.
0: That's Chef Eric Greenspan. You can check out Eric's most recent projects, including his latest cookbook, at ChefEricGreenspan.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to JoshKopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.